Institute's Course 13 Lectures on Original Doctor Who. This uh, is a recording made available free to the public. The latter part of the recording may be a bit choppy as some of our members have requested that their voices and questions be removed from the publicly distributed recording. Vengeance on Veros, some of the themes we talk about here will come back to in The Sunmakers, uh, some we won't. But in terms of, uh, but I, I found on re-watching it that there were things about it that I had forgotten. Now, obviously, um, there's a bunch of stuff in the show that isn't new. It's just Doctor Who's first engagement with it. So the idea of like a dystopian future with um, torture porn reality TV um, was certainly not new by 1984. In fact, I'd argue that it escaped the speculative fiction genre and entered the mainstream with um, Paddy Chayefsky's film Network winning Best Picture in 1976. I think it's at that, that point that you can say that the, the future, the, televi- the television future that uh, we eventually arrived at was well anticipated by our culture, that um, we were just waiting <clears throat> to have a lot of shitty reality TV on all the time. And curiously, um, we passed that point. Um, I think that uh, we were in that world for a while, but um, reality TV, it turns out that the sense of immediacy that you get in broadcast TV, that you don't get in streaming TV, has really undermined uh, reality TV in the longer term. That if people are not all watching the humiliation and calamities at the same time, they lack the sense of immediacy that has carried people through the best reality TV. Um, Before I sort of uh, finish glossing that subject, I do actually think that the finest reality TV show ever produced was um, MTV's The Surreal Life Season 2, because it effectively reduced reality TV to what it was. There were no prizes. um, There was no actual competition. It was just 12 washed-up celebrities living in a house... (laughs) desperate for attention to relaunch their careers. And when you realize that the prizes are all fake because the real prize is attention, um, the reality TV thing actually makes sense. 
for those who have not seen the season two of The Surreal Life, I still highly recommend it. Especially, it's got Eric Estrada from Chips. Um, it's got um, Tammy Faye Baker uh, <laughs> from PTL and Ron Jeremy, uh, the rapist porn star, um, and uh, Vanilla Ice. And I think really the crowning moment of early 21st century reality TV is the episode of The Surreal Life where Gary Coleman guest stars because he is too washed up a celebrity and because it's contrary to network policy to feature him as a regular cast member while he's running for governor of California. Um, And so there's this great scene of Vanilla Ice in tears, refusing to participate in the Gary Coleman event going, do you know how ridiculous we're gonna look if we appear with Gary Coleman? That guy is a complete joke. And uh, being comforted by Tammy Faye Baker and Ron Jeremy. I thought that was really like reality TV is never, never going to be better than Vanilla Ice's Gary Coleman breakdown. But I think in some ways we can see that earlier, more primitive understandings of reality TV govern vengeance on Veros. That people think that the appeal is transgression and violence. Uh, when in fact, the appeal of reality TV is the humiliation adjacent to the transgression and the violence was a reality TV contestant that was so upsetting, like getting to hear how the shows were made. It's like, all right, you're all going to drink a pint of tequila and then you're going to join hands and stand around this one guy and scream faggot at him until he starts to cry. Um, So, yeah, I think that um, we're still looking at the... um, before reality TV actually tests these premises, we're looking at a, um, uh, a pretty conventional portrayal of it in Vengeance on Veros. There are some other things, there, there's one thing about the reality TV in Vengeance on Veros that's different than your typical reality TV sci-fi. And that is the importance of how the people in the show Um, are sometimes being shown reality and sometimes being shown illusions. That that's very much the experience of people that we know who are contestants in those shows. Um, But that's actually not a thing that um, was made a lot of in many portrayals anticipating reality TV. The idea that the reality TV was was hyper real in the French sense of the word. That uh, hyper that in hyper reality, um, you can mix the real and the unreal together, and they're effectively and causally indistinguishable. I think the show did that part very well. I think that in this way, it was a pretty forward-looking treatment of a pretty of a theme that was already pretty old by 1984. Um, this idea that when you're inside the production, um, you don't have a special view where things are more real because they're happening to you. 
It's that you're the only one who isn't in on what is an illusion and what is reality. And I think that that inversion is one of the smarter takes in the show, that it's the contestants and the makers for whom that's inverted because the doctor turns that on his head. The makers of the show are also unclear on which of the things they filmed are real and which are not. In the cliffhanger where the doctor appears to die at the end of the uh, episode, uh, first episode. Uh, so in this way, the doctor turns on the makers a property of the show that only affects the contestants where they don't know whether the doctor may have died because of an illusion they have created, but they misguess whether his death is itself an illusion. Um, I think that uh, one of the reasons they were well set up to do that was um, their very early invention of the matrix. The, uh, you know, isn't that the following season? Um, no, The Matrix shows up in 1976 in The Deadly Assassin. It ah. returns in 1986 in Trial of a Time Lord. But the original explanation of The Matrix, um, and, you know, I, I think The Deadly Assassin is a good candidate for something the Wachowski brothers ripped off, that uh, they... Um, uh, Deadly Assassin in 1976 is a very strange uh, show. It's the only, for people who hate Doctor Who, it's the Star Trek Voyager of Doctor Who, the uh, 1976 episode Deadly Assassin. It, uh, it's so unlike Doctor Who, people who hate the show love it. Uh, but the, the clever thing uh, in Deadly Assassin is this idea that the Time Lords store their data inside hyper-reality in a thing called the Matrix. And <clears throat> so I think um, one of the reasons the script editor and script writer can operate with that idea of the hyper-real reality show rather than the real reality show is, um, is the fact that they've been well set up for that since um, reintroducing the Time Lords in, uh, in 76. So uh, all that stuff is worthwhile. And it's certainly stuff that you're strongly encouraged to look at as being the central thematic material of the show. But in many ways, I, I don't think it is the central thematic material of the show. At the end of the day, the reality shows are window dressing on top of structural violence that in, although they're expressing, structure, uh, they're expressing structural violence in terms of individual executions, individual people being tortured, um, the oppression has very little to do with the reality TV. The oppression is textbook dependency theory. This is Andre Gunder Frank dependency theory. This is... Um, the resource curse. This is a banana republic. And the only reason our attention is directed towards the reality TV is the tremendous irony that um, the subversive thing the governor is doing um, 
is that he's trying to do import substitution industrialization through reality TV. It's like, we could have a second export. We could show our own efforts to maintain, uh, we can show the violence of our regime and reduce the structural violence by exporting depictions of the symbolic violence and the individual violence. And that, um, whether you like the execution or not, I think is a damn clever idea. The idea that you're being distracted from the structural violence by the actual violence. Uh, I think that's, um, that's a pretty solid criticism of, for, of um, regimes prior to the, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good description of the Trump regime that uh, when the Trump regime is interested in enacting structural violence, it enacts symbolic violence to direct attention away from the structural violence. Uh, and that that's, that's part of <clears throat> the way the power works. So if we look at this as, if we look at the reality TV and the symbolic violence as this attempt by a banana republic to escape from its oppression, um, it might be worthwhile to look at how closely this fits the bill for a classic, classic American open door Central American banana republic. First of all, um, you have a military command structure where the military's true patron and the source of the military's resources is an external corporation, not the taxpayers of the state. So just like the, um, and for those of you who remember us doing Shattered Hope in the book group about the Arbenz uh, government in Guatemala and it being overthrown by the United States, you might want to you might want to see our governor here as a character like uh, President Arevalo, our uh, Bence's immediate predecessor, a person with no real social movement support or military support, who is being buffeted to and fro. Yes, technically he's the president of the country, but he has almost no power himself. Um, a feature of the Banana Republics that became institutionalized in the 1920s with the creation of the Nicaraguan National Guard, tested by the US in Nicaragua and then expanded throughout the region, is the idea that the military is a domestic military until you reach a certain level of promotion. And for those who rise through the military and become viewed as reliable people, they discover that they are in the middle of a command structure based in Washington, DC. The Americans fly them to Washington, DC to take courses at the School of the Americas, which is still in operation. Some of our most uh, important political euphemisms are the names of courses 
at the school for the Americas, like regime change and enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, these are courses you get under your belt as a senior officer in a Latin American military, um, only to be sent back home to practice those things. And we see that absolutely epitomized in the head of the military. The head of the military works for the corporations and his training, his power, his everything actually comes from a place external to Veros. Now, if you're some regular chump who might be a kind of principled guy, the School of the Americas doesn't want to train you. Right? You become like Jacobo Arbenz or our governor here, where instead you're put in the terminal position where you're a person with a bunch of local power who's actually already been picked out as a future scapegoat for um, what the Americans' company, uh, what Dole or uh, Cuyamel or uh, United Fruit is going to do next. So again, we've got these characters and we can think of all kinds of real people who've been in these, uh, the role of the governor and the chief officer. And there are those moments, whether you're um, Salaya or Allende or Arbenz, where the guy who's really in charge of your country comes to fire you. Uh, now, the... Um, so there's a um, so this power flows downwards, and the power flows from the fact that the commodity coming out of the planet is valuable. Once again, the most threatening thing about this governor is he wants the planet to sell two things instead of one thing. He's willing to make terrible sacrifices to sell two things instead of one thing because this is mainly what gets you killed as a Latin American head of state. If you attempt to break the power of the American corporations over your state. Um, so um, the, now of course, there's an, we get back to the, the product that's being exported. Part of what Veros is exporting is um, something that Brazil tried to export before a dictatorship was imposed upon it and did continue exporting after the dictatorship. And that is a sense of disturbing exoticism. And we see that with the Mengele figure who has come up with these exciting modes of torture that are exotic and are sexualized in the minds of their audience. You think of um, Brazil being, um, you know, I should, uh, I should tell the, the, the Thompson anecdote actually. Uh, it's my, it's I think my favorite Ontario politics anecdote because it explains the Ontario Liberal Party to people who don't understand it because there's nothing like it in the West. Um, so uh, my friend, John Thompson, um, was um, a longtime organizer for the Conservative Party in Ontario and uh, 
was one of the few people who lived in downtown Toronto who was like an active public Tory. And so when the Harris government got in, uh, John got a small patronage job, which was a um, couple days a month, he would go to a small private theater with great catering and he sat on the Ontario Film Ratings Commission. And um, he would, uh, uh, and he'd get to watch all the new movies before they came out and rate them and uh, take home a $2,000 check or a $1,200 check, depending upon how long the day was. And um, he was having a lot more fun than the other people on the Film Ratings Commission because um, uh, they were mostly from the Christian right and didn't approve of a lot of what they were watching. And so it's actually called the Ontario Film Review Board. Review Board, yes. So, John, um, so when the McGuinty government took office, he thought, okay, while the Liberals are in power, they're going to purge these patronage appointees. I'll just offer them my resignation. They refused to accept it. (laughs) They had other plans for John and the Tory appointees from Christian right organizations. They were shunted aside to deal with a sudden problem that had emerged in the early 2000s in Ontario, which was the misuse of the third film category, which is a film for, of ethno-cultural significance for a minority community in Ontario. Um, suddenly, John and the Tories were now dealing with um, pretty much only films falling into this category. But mainly they were to deal with the problem of the fact that pornographers were making the case that Brazilian transsexual porn was a fundamental part of Brazilian culture and um, forced the Tory appointees to watch hour upon hour upon hour of Brazilian transsexual (laughs) porn. And I mean, uh, John was my my D and D GM at the time, and I remember him just coming back from from the from rating the films, looking absolutely ashen faced, going like, "I don't think he, it's the scale of it. I I think this is Brazil's whole economic miracle. I think this might be all they're exporting." Um, so eventually, John and all the Tories resigned and they just started labeling the films porn because uh, it was they, there was never really any question as to what they were. Um, but how is it that these porn manufacturers were able to make this case? Well, that's because of what Brazil sought to export. It wasn't just Carmen Miranda's hat. It was the drag queens of Carnival in Rio de Janeiro. They attempted to export something that was right on the edge of the exotic and the grotesque playing with race, playing with gender, all of this stuff that made Brazil attractive by hitting these really upsetting notes in people's consciousness, uh, produced a burgeoning tourism industry, but it was that, that that, that export of the uncanny that was so effective. And so when we look at um, how the two female characters are tortured in the show, um, I see a pretty direct analog there. I'm not saying it's an intentional reference, but I think there's something very similar going on 
where you're trying to capitalize, uh, you're trying to get out from under imperialism by reinforcing the very imperialist narratives of your culture being grotesque and exotic uh, and transgressing boundary lines between blackness and whiteness. And um, because of course, most of the, um, of the, uh, the, the drag queens of Carnival in the 50s and 60s were racialized people as well. So I think there's, um, there's actually, I mean, and it's interesting, right? Because this is an English show. And I, this is not a show about British imperialism, but it's sure a show about American imperialism. This is nothing like how the British empire would oppress a colony. This is bang on in terms of how an American empire would oppress a colony. Now, of course, this isn't a banana republic. They're not exporting a luxury food. Um, or a wartime food that can be easily dried into chips. Um, they're exporting what's pretty clearly an oil equivalent. And I think the show is directing our attention to the ways in which the new oil dictatorships of the mid 80s, following the collapse of OPEC, many of the weaker states collapse into this kind of banana republic situation with the US. If there's a real world state, and I'm not saying the writers are aware of it, but if there's a real world state with a comparable situation, it's Equatorial Guinea, um, a society that, um, where the fishing industry was systematically eradicated so there would only be one possible export and then this descent into extreme poverty. Now, the other thing that we notice here is um, when we're thinking about this oppression, we also assume for much of the show that Sill the intergalactic slug, and I know he doesn't look like a slug, but John Nathan Turner and Colin Baker both called him Sill the intergalactic slug at Doctor Who conventions in Bellingham. So. Uh, I'm going with his unofficial name. We assume for much of the show that Sill the Intergalactic Slug is simply transparently representing the interests of capital, that he's just transparently representing the interests of his corporation. But we discover in the denouement that in fact, a lot of what Sill is doing is utterly gratuitous and for his own enjoyment. And what I wanna suggest here is that this again goes back to the grotesque and the, the power of the grotesque to shock, to mobilize and to demobilize people. So um, the, uh, uh, so Sill in some ways, right, they don't care. They're still making money hand over fist if they double the price of the ore. Makes no difference to the company. But that stated, Sill is still the company's choice as governor, uh, as a de facto governor, and they don't even sack him after all the fuck ups. Um, they keep him on. And in part, that's because the company recognizes that there is a surplus value 
that is being conferred by Sill's madness and barbarism and upsetting appearance. That they've chosen someone um, who, uh, that, that treating, that offering a fair price for the ore is, um, is a last resort. Um, a, a fair price for the ore is, um, sure, we could do that. We don't want to, not because we can't afford it, not because we love profits so much, but because Sill's awfulness gives people the sense of the hegemonic power of the company that um, he's impossible to identify with. He looks inhuman and they won't fix his language translator. They probably sent him there with a faulty automated translator in order to seem that much more alien, that much more grotesque, that much more extreme. And we certainly see that with American imperialism in oil republics and banana republics, where local leaders are often chosen based on their unpopularity rather than their popularity that they're often chosen based on their apparent madness rather than their ability to maintain a stable deal. Um, today, you know, America could learn a thing or two about how it used to do business because um, that's obviously why China keeps Kim Jong-un around. He's just so fucking upsetting on top of everything else. It's easier to keep someone down if they know there's a big military behind them if they really fuck up but that that madness and inhumanity can be conveyed on a daily basis. Now, I think for me, the most interesting thing about the show um, are your two voters. And I think they do just a, a wonderful job of showing how to play a populist. Um, right, the populist husband is totally played all the time. He thinks that he's he thinks that he's a subversive element. He convinces his wife he's a subversive element. His wife even reports him she thinks he's so subversive. But of course, it's his voting that carries out the agenda of the company, not hers. His insistence on pulling the rug out from under any local elite who attempts to stand up to capital and sacking them in favor of a weaker local elite who will do an even shittier job of standing up to capital. And I think that indicates a paradoxically conservative message. If you were to screen this in Guatemala City, it's a case for supporting the old corrupt local elite over the hand-picked company elite. That the conservative voter who just likes people who look strong, who look like they've got it together, who look like they can take some shit and come out alive, um, her political instincts are more correct than she knows whereas her populist husband's political instincts are less correct than he knows. That in fact, the way that Veros could have optimized its ore prices before the doctor showed up 
would have been for voters to take on the most conservative voting strategy, not the least conservative strategy. I think they also do a great job of showing how in a state like ours, elections weaken the power of leaders at the periphery, right? That the more democratic accountability you build into a state like British Columbia, that is an export-oriented rentier economy, the more democratic accountability we have, the weaker our government is in charting any meaningful independent course. That, um, uh, that uh, and I, I think that, that, and I think the show asks some good and fairly interesting questions about how ballot-based democracy can cohabit with capitalism. And I think the show's pronouncement is a very negative one that, um, uh, that ultimately a, um, uh, that uh, high levels of democratic accountability um, in a state whose uh, economy fluctuates based on commodity prices beyond its control, that the more democratic accountability mechanisms you add, the less capable that state is going to be of standing up to transnational capital for any sustained period of time. Um, the, uh, uh, another thing that I find politically troubling and interesting is that again, even if the doctor hadn't arrived, Sill and his company are already aware that one of the other companies is about to fuck them over and try and take Veros away from them by offering better prices. Uh, and that, um, that a way out is in fact what we would see as globalization. That if, oh, if we just get more companies competing for this or the place will get safer. And so I think in some ways, um, the show is both anti-capitalist and pro-Thatcher, who has just been reelected in the 1983 election when they make vengeance on Veros. Uh, okay, so that's, um, that's a lot of what I wanted to say, I haven't even been reading um, uh, the comments here. Um, the, uh, uh, okay, so first of all, as to the marital status of the couple, uh, I believe they, they are married. And one of the things about their marriage that's interesting is that um, uh, their domestic space is tiny and in terms of the work we've done on social reproduction theory and women's labor, you can see that the wife is in a very precarious position because her labor power isn't being used for anything. It's simply being used to carry rations to the table from another part of their room. Um, she, the only power she has is her vote. Uh, whereas 100% of the couple's earnings are coming through the husband. And I think that's one of the reasons that in some ways, 
they make her politically sympathetic because while her husband is coming home dead tired every day from the mines looking for someone to punch, she seems to have some intuitive understanding of the larger structure of what's going on, at least in her voting, if not in her conversation. Uh, okay. Oh, thank you for that, Joey. Yes. Yeah, so this is also a period where you have the last great Arthur Scargill coal miners strike. I had not realized uh, that. So uh, the coal miners are about to be repudiated by um, Neil Kinnock uh, and his new proto third way labor leadership. So we can also see that this is uh, a state that um, is willing to pity the coal miners, but not to trust their judgment. So I think that's a, that's a very good addition, uh, Joey. Um, okay, up to, uh, Alana made the uh, comment that uh, the torture of the male resistance leader is also sexualized. And I would agree there, but I think that um, the politics of his body are different. I don't see his torture is resistant to ideas of the grotesque. And in fact, they work with a form of torture that keeps him really, really pretty in the dead opposite way to the way they torture the women in the show. Uh, Okay. Yes. And um, yeah, so Cuba, good, uh, good example. Uh, Michael's given us a good list of the other reality shows that were better shows about real uh, other movies that were better shows about reality TV. Um, all right. So that's, um, I think I've caught up to where we are in the class. Uh, I'm interested in other folks comments, questions on um Vengeance on Veros, and whether anything could have been done to make you like Colin Baker. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. I never liked Colin Baker. I, I couldn't stand anything he did. I remember watching this episode roughly when it came out. I saw it in 1986 in Toronto, um, which is another reason why I couldn't stand, couldn't stand him at all. But uh, let's go back to some of the things that were brought up. First of all, the set looks at the very opening. It looks like the very first BBC broadcast back in 1931 with a bare mechanical uh, reproduction system. It was sort of a quasi-German um, uh, kind of set, German expressionism set, very bare minimum. Oh, you know what? I just realized I watched about 20 episodes in the last couple of days. I'm thinking the wrong film. Never mind. That's, a, that's next week's. Uh, but the thing that really brings me up in this one we're talking about streaming. Well, you know, I, as you know from my Facebook uh, postings, I'm very much into um, SpaceX and all the live streams that are going there. Well, we're all seeing that in real time. It's just a different kind of reality show. Um, is this anything like uh, D.A. Pennebaker doing a Cinema Verte style uh, documentary, like Bob Dylan's Don't Look Back or um, Candidate? Well, I mean, this is where reality TV actually sprang out of originally. Um, and, you know, you can go back to the Cinema Verite uh, filmmakers and the direct cinema uh, filmmakers from Quebec and see 
where this all sort of kind of came out of. And I think the big thing here is, is that it was thought of back then in the 1970s, 1950s, even, you know, going up to 1984. But remember, this is 1984 and everyone's, oh my God, it's 1984. Um, <laughs> referring back, you know, referring back to the novel. And, you know, um, George, Orwell, George Orwell or Arthur Blair, um, you know, this stuff was kind of self-referential in that respect. Um, in particular, I think that, you know, this was already old hat and you had the film 1984 with Annie Lennox singing the title song, Sex Crime, uh, already out there when this is coming out. And, you know, this seems like a pale version of 1984, a really pale version of it. Um, because, of course, in 1984, George Orwell does have a very similar um, system of reality TV. I mean, you're always in front of a vid screen. Everyone's viewable at all times. So that's used in this. I mean, it's not, you know, this is very mainstream, especially in that year. Um, so um, I don't think they were terribly innovative on that. Um, the other thing is, I mean, they did kind of get what was going on with stuff like um, Big Brother and so forth that would come out you know, 15 years later, up to a point. Um, didn't fully anticipate some of what would make Big Brother uh, useful. But going back to streaming, um, streaming, uh, again, I come from a broadcast background. You would have seen my fuck-ups on TV live in front of millions of people because, you know, I worked in CBC Master Control and I hit a button and, of course, the tape didn't go and boom, we had to go, hey, we have technical difficulties. So point is, in live streaming, uh, I sometimes work for a guy goes by the name of Everyday Astronaut, and we do a live stream, and we have one to two million people watching our stream, doing watching basically a Texas tank take off. In other words, uh, their Starship program uh, from SpaceX, which looks basically like a glorified uh, grain elevator, uh, <laughs> taking off into space. But there's at least one to two million people simultaneously watching this on a stream, which is the same as a broadcast, because when I'm broadcasting, when I used to work at the CBC, our audience at most was 2 million, pe two million people at most. So um, streaming, I think, still brings that in. And I think now that we're getting more into very narrow casting by the streaming, there's enough people across the world to get 2 million people, as opposed to waiting for a small country like Canada to get 1 or 2 million people. So narrow casting is going on. And I refer this back to this film or this TV serial. Uh, the fact that this was on all the time in that um, community, and, you know, you could see Arkel, the, uh, the husband, I was like, oh, I'm kind of paying attention. I'm not really paying attention. And then it's on all the time. And it's the same with the internet now. You can go to different YouTube channels. You can go and watch stuff that's essentially reality TV. Just it's not the same as what ABC is doing. It's not the same as what MTV is doing. Um, the funny thing I like about what you were talking about with uh, uh, the surreal life, I don't know how I saw that. I didn't have MTV at that time. I, I have a feeling it was on City TV because they owned the rights at that time to much music. So I saw it on much music because I did see the episode you're talking about. I couldn't stop laughing when I saw it back when it happened. Um, 
And it does remind me so, somewhat of what's going on here as well. Uh, but finally, I think the funniest thing is that you mentioned that your film was a conservative, and it was the Doug Ford conservatives that actually killed the film reveal of film, the Ontario Film and Video Review Board uh, back in 2019. So you, Ontario films no longer are classified via the review board. So that uh, that level of um, uh, of government interference, shall we say, or uh, patronage, no longer exists in Ontario for the time being, anyways. So now that's my take on uh, that part of it. And the only other thing I'd like to say about that um, this video, it's just Colin Baker was absolutely the wrong choice to be the doctor, and you can see why the pro. This is why the program nearly died. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, up next, uh, Margaret. Uh... Well, I didn't care much for Colin Baker either. Um, can anybody hear me? Yes. Yeah, I hear you fine. Okay. Um, and I thought the show, however, was good because it did remind me of things like 1984. And, you know, when you see this married couple enjoying what they're seeing, you're sort of thinking of the end of 1984 when he looks up and says he loves Big Brother. That was the last sentence in 1984. After he'd gone through so much with his girlfriend, that was his last statement. And I kind of thought um, at the very end, of course, you notice that the husband and wife, she said, well, we can do whatever we want, but what do we want to do? And I thought that was interesting. You're suddenly free and you don't have any idea what you're going to do. You're also yeah. free of the TV too. Yes, what, because what the, TV, the TV is all snow. Yes. Other reactions uh, to the uh, to the show. Um, all right. Uh, judging by body language, I'm picking Alana next. Um. Yeah, I mean, I still don't like Colin Baker. I'm sorry. Uh, I think that I think that they also did him no favors with the costume like that it's not a good costume it does not look good on him it does not suit his personality it uh yeah like it, the whole thing is just ill-conceived and furthermore I find this whole period of Doctor Who fairly difficult because I am also not a fan of Perry either. Like, um, you know, you get Scream. why she, she gets annoyed with the Doctor, but man, <laughs> she's just, yeah, not good. Um, that whatever whatever accent it is that she's doing is um the yeah upsetting our accent is really hard to do apparently <laughs> and I yet didn't, i didn't think that was the worst part of her uh, acting i mean it sounds like a mid-atlantic accent for the most part i mean there's also the part where she's just 
so unhappy to be there all the time. It, it sort of drags everything down. It's just There's that unhappy, annoying quaver to her voice a little bit, a lot of the yeah. time. Yeah. She's a whiner. <laughs> yeah, I think Brandon Robinson put it pretty clearly that uh, Nicola Bryant's fan base for that role is entirely um, like him and other boys who were 12 when she was introduced in Planet of Fire. Uh, I think it would have been very hard for me to develop any sympathy for her as a companion if the first four episodes of her were just her wearing almost nothing, uh, less than any previous Doctor Who companion in the uh, 1983 serial Planet of Fire which was filmed on the Canary Islands. Uh, so yeah, I think that, that you've got a problem where your lead characters are vastly less compelling than the villain. Like who doesn't enjoy Syl? Yeah, um, yeah Syl, Syl's sort of gleeful monstrosity is just so much more entertaining. Like it's just, yeah. And the marshmallows, um, like the worst marshmallows in the universe. Uh, that said, I think it's unfortunate because I think there are some very clever turns in the writing on the show. You know, congratulations, Governor, you survived the vote and all of that. Like, I think, I think there is a lot of cleverness there in it, and and um, I think in the hands of a different production team, that script could have been way better than than it was. Which is, yeah, I just. The script editor, Sayward, uh, hated that script. And th mm. that script had been around for about three years. It originally, it was going to be a fifth Doctor script. And they rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. So, I'm trying to think if it would, be, would have been better with five instead of six. I don't know. I'm not sure yeah, there's a category, there's a script that would be better with six than another doctor. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's just, um, yeah. Anyway, I did, I did enjoy uh, watching some parts of it again, and um Did, I did think it was interesting that obviously uh, the way everybody seemed to to you know watch the rebels being tortured as sort of a you know a sporting event or whatever like that was um, I don't know people people were just sort of so you know cheerfully entertained by it I thought that was quite quite funny. But yeah, that's about that's about all. Uh, other uh, oh, but on, well, I do, yeah, just on the subject of reality TV. Um, yeah, reality TV isn't really being made very much uh, or as much by uh, networks anymore because everybody is just making their own and you know filming themselves and putting themselves on YouTube playing, you know, video games or, or, you know, dancing around in their kitchens <laughs> or whatever, like gradually everybody is turning themselves into, into television, you know, into 
um, content, which is being watched by everybody. So, you know, Big Brother being sort of being something that you watch or something that watches you, it's it's now everybody is watching each other at the same simultaneously. It's it's. Um, Right. Uh, other uh, other observations uh, on this show. Uh, I haven't heard from Michael yet. The, um, can you hear me okay? Yep. The uh, new reality TV ads, it's self-generated TikTok video. The only reality TV that networks are creating are competition shows like The Math Singer or... Uh, cooking or baking competition shows. They don't really do the old style anymore because you're right. People are generating their own public humiliation videos. So uh -huh. it's free. Uh, as far as this particular episode goes, uh, I loathe Colin Baker. And uh, what really struck me right from the very beginning of this episode was the not just lack of chemistry between the doctor and Perry, but that opening sequence when they're in the TARDIS and talking about what's happening was so stilted. It was like a grade nine drama class. It was so apparent to me that these two people hate each other. They hate each other, they hate this job, they hate this script, they could barely stomach getting through these scenes. And it, it, it became even more apparent to me when the the scene switched to the two married workers. They were the most compelling part of the show to me. And when the scene switches to where uh, Perry, once she's in the clutches of the governor and his bald minion, the acting quality from the governor and the bald minion, when they're in the room with Perry, it's like, oh, these are two professional actors that are really trying to deliver a believable performance. And Nicola Bryant is just hitting the bed on purpose. He was awful, so awful. I couldn't stand her. Uh, and yeah, there's no, there's no way to save Colin Baker. He never should have been the doctor. Nobody could have saved this script. And also, it's 1984, and the special effects are worse than they were in 1976. The, the, the overall production quality has started to collapse. And so even a clever bit of writing couldn't lift this one up. Like, it, it couldn't get out of its own way. So um, uh, just with, with your observation about, um, uh, I mean, it's interesting. Colin Baker really wanted the job. And then everything he was told about how to do the job was contrary to how he wanted to do it. So because he was not a popular choice in the first place, he ended up being the doctor over whom the producer had the most power. And um, he did talk about that subsequent to the role because of course, when he was fired, he had a total breakdown. Um, and uh, because he knew that he'd like, that he'd wanted to do this his whole adult life and he finally had a chance to do it and it was awful. And, uh, I um so I, th I think that that uh, so there you know there's an element of like minor personal tragedy there. Um, the you survive the vote thing that Alana mentions certainly um, 
that really that's a i mean that that's a great like latin american election line it uh, i do think that it um uh that when one looks at sort of the overall argument the script is making as opposed to its execution um the um, uh, the ideas about the interactions between capitalism and democracy, um, they're very easy to find in life. You immediately laugh when you hear that you survived the vote, because even if one is fairly peripheral to politics, you one sees that toll and one sees people being weakened progressively by these uh, by these contests. Yeah, I think it's, um, again, to go to our sort of doctrinaire uh, Marx-informed stuff, this is right on track, right? That as capital runs, uh, as capitalism runs out of things in the physical world to commodify, it has to extend into the private and into the immaterial. That um, that's, uh, that, that, you know, Engels and Marx are saying this in the 1880s. They don't know what the technologies uh, are that are going to be used, but they can see that that's the direction we're going in. And um, I think it was a New Year's party, probably nearly 20 years ago, uh, Alana made an upsetting (laughs) prediction. I don't remember what year she named, whether it was 2030 or 2050, but there's this moment where we're talking about like the rise of reality TV, but like, you know, it's it's a it's nearly a generation ago, and we're talking about you know how things are going to be, and we're talking about like you know there's this YouTube and these people putting themselves up there and whatever. And Lana's like, well, I think by such and such a year there will be a video of everyone in the world gobbling cock on the internet. And uh, I was well, uh, I think we were we were talking about it in the context of um, of what was sort of a new phenomenon at the time of, you know, people attempting to seek political office and then, you know, being prevented because, you know, somebody oh, yes. discovered, you know, some, some indiscretion that had been posted on, you know, their That's Facebook right. page or whatever. That's right. And the only way that was going to be equalized was because <laughs> yes. eventually. Yes, like once there's, once there's, <laughs> you know, footage of everyone in the world having done something indiscreet <laughs> that's on the internet, then, you know. And don't worry, with deep fakes, you don't have to do it yourself. That's right. Yes, the point is the omnipresence of the video itself. Yeah. Uh, the universalization, the universalization of the cock gobbling. Yes. So it it was a, um, but uh, yeah, it it struck me as just very efficiently expressive of a moment we can all see in the future. Uh, well, I so, sorry. I think we're I think we're in that moment now. Like. Um, I find the honor-shame dynamics on the internet, um, ah, Michael remembers where Alana delivered that pronouncement. Very impressive. (laughs) It was on 10th Avenue in Vancouver in 2007. (laughs) So, uh, um, yeah, so, but on the other hand, like, the thing I was in with Sven Robinson over the weekend, right, so two MPs have, have basically called Sven a racist now. Um, and uh, it's, it's really something looking at what transgressions matter and which ones don't. 
right? Because there are people who have total social immunity where we have footage of them doing heinous and unspeakable things. And it's being determined that unless you're of a very particular social rank, you can't present that evidence, that that evidence is in fact indicative that there's something wrong with you. Um, you know, so if I had had the presence of mind to film Morgan Auger pushing Bo and Ma out of the microphone line at an NDP provincial council meeting, um, I would still be the bad guy if I showed that video. Uh, and that in fact, um, so I think we're developing, I mean, we're developing very complex rules about the usability of these things. Apparently there's some character in um, um, Toronto who has achieved social immunity, who um, is viewed as like a major progressive opinion leader who has, um, you know, rape and murder charges under their belt. Um, in addition to, you know, talking publicly about sexual attraction to minors and again, no problem, immunity. So I think that that we're I think we're dealing with like a second axis in the graph, but we don't know what the variable being tracked on that axis is. I There's think, something complex going on. I, I think it's a bit like the whole idea of post-scarcity economics. Mm. Like, yes, in some ways we are um you know, much closer to meeting everybody's material needs with great abundance than we ever have been. And yet the divisions between rich and poor are greater than they've ever been. So, it, they, yeah. Yes, that the only thing that can produce scarcity is wealth. And there is some kind of similar principle acting around reputation that I struggle to quantify but I'm only like, I'm not doing a good job. Like I'm working really hard at trying to quantify that thing. Um, but I can only see what it looks like on the left, the same rules operating on the right. And it's incoherent to me. Like I can't even narrate who does and doesn't have social immunity on the right. Um, like well, I know Ford, that it's- Doug Ford and Rob Ford. I mean, think about it. Rob Ford, under any normal circumstances, would have been like dead politically. Yet, when in 2010, everything that came up at that point where he was being a racist, where he was caught drinking in public or abusing people, it didn't matter. Magically, it didn't matter. Well, it um, didn't just not matter. It made him more popular. It drove his popularity. If you look at the polls, Every time Smitherman attacked him over one of those things, Ford would go up and Smitherman would go down. And that's because people categorized Rob Ford as a person enjoying immunity and Smitherman as a person transgressing that immunity. Um, yeah, and the thing is too, I think Smitherman was a terrible candidate. Um, unfortunately that, you know, and, you know, Joe, uh, geez, I just can't think of Joe's last name, but, you know, the former... Pasha, uh, uh, yeah, no, no, old Pantalone. 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 
you know, Pat was a terrible candidate too to be mayor. I mean, this all happened because Adam Jimbrone, and this is really, this is exactly what we're talking about. So Adam Jimbrone is basically forced to resign from the campaign because he had a, an indiscretion, a sexual indiscretion with a staffer years previous. Meanwhile, Rob Ford is currently, you know, at the time, uh, making racist um, epitaphs to people. It's all recorded on audio. and it's Sometimes it's even on video. He doesn't have to resign. Adam Jimbrone had, had to resign. And he did not have that immunity. And that was a real piss off because that's how Rob Ford actually got elected. Because the left was set up to go and mm-hmm. get Adam elected. Well, you'll recall I was de-vetted as the St. Paul's candidate over my support for Adam Jambroni, saying that yeah, he shouldn't resign. That. So, but that's oh. the thing. We can describe the situation, but we can't name the pattern. We know that one person had immunity and one didn't, but we, we don't really know where, we don't fully understand where Rob Ford's immunity came from. And it's curious, right? In some ways, I think of all of the 20th century TV characters, um, the person who most speaks to our time is not Brian Cranston's brilliant Heisenberg in Breaking Bad, but Brian Cranston's Tim Watley on Seinfeld, the guy who's pursuing total social immunity. Um, that he's joining identity groups to achieve immunity. And what's interesting is it's paired with the fact that his dentist's office magazines are all hardcore porn. Uh, (laughs) I think there's something actually quite important that Larry David saw that is expressed in Cranston's character. Um, Well, it reminded me a lot of the historical popularity of lynchings and public public hangings and such. Yeah, that's a point. Lynchings are participatory. And I think that's a great way of reframing the voting for the office of governor. Um, These approval votes have the features of a good Southern lynching you uh, sell train tickets to. Postcards of the hanging, as Tom said. Yes, postcards. Which actually refers to, yeah which actually refers to a real thing that happened in 1920 Minnesota. Oh, it happened many times. Um, There was a whole industry. The greeting card industry was enmeshed. Railway greeting cards. uh, It was insane. Manila. Yeah, two episodes with Peter Davison are two of the best Peter Davison episodes. Peter Davison gets really short shrift in this course, but both Planet of Fire and Caves of Androzani are superb shows um Mm. caves of androzani is a very very weird phantom of the opera adaptation um and planet of fire i i really like like it's got some clunky stuff around the local resistance movement but doctor who always has clunky stuff around the local resistance movement uh so they're yes much better stuff the worst Colin Baker portrayal combined with the worst script and the worst <laughs> effects, time lapse. 
Time Lash is a truly, truly appalling piece of television. It is just about the low point of the series, I would say. No, it's one of those things. It's one of those shows that's worse than the Irish potato famine. Like, it's... um, it's so bad. The, the only series is almost grace, canceled over. Yeah, the yeah. only saving grace is that the time tunnel in it is made entirely out of Christmas decorations, and there's a certain like bloody-minded insanity um, <laughs> to the use of all those Christmas ornaments. Uh, very recognizable Christmas ornaments uh, in that show. Um, just in case you wonder what, what you might do with discarded Christmas ornaments. Uh, so, well, um, we, spe- speaking of the uh, sixth, uh, sorry, the fifth doctor, um, of course, for the fourth doctor, Logolopolis and um, Logolopolis happened uh, exactly 40 years ago last week. So, th- that series, I mean, it's been 40 years since uh, our baker has actually been the, the, the uh, doctor. And so that was, uh, I was kind of glad to see that we're going to be dealing with uh, Logolopolis coming up. But um, yeah, that's just went over a lot of people's heads that it's now 40 years since uh, uh, since the really the fourth doctor was the doctor. Yeah, I was very glad. That, I mean, I didn't like how they brought him back for the 50th anniversary, but I think that it was it was a certain statement the show made that they brought back one of the original doctors for the 50th anniversary and they picked him. Um, and yeah, there's, there's so much to, uh, to enjoy there. So I could, I mean, it's great that people are already chomping at the bit for um, the next episodes. Um, if you find you're running low on time and um, you don't have three hours to put in, you've only got an hour and a half to put in, um, Castro Valva, the Peter Davison one, will be more the focus of discussion next time than uh, Tom Baker's last. Although Tom Baker's last will certainly give some time to. One thing uh, to note when you're looking at the endless, massive visual inconsistencies uh, that you'll see not just between Logopolis and Castrovalvo, but throughout Logopolis. Um, these are a little excusable in the transition between the stories because Castrovalvo has aired 18 months after Logopolis is aired. The show takes a huge break. And so you're going to look at, you know, Nissa, Tegan, and Adric kneel down and 18 months later, they have to go back to that scene as um, somewhat older people. Uh, And uh, that's obviously going to be pretty apparent. Okay, so it's um, it's nearly seven. We've we've filled up more of our day. Uh, Let's uh, let's see all on Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.